welcome to the show. This is episode number 39 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Blade Runner on your Wake Up, Time to Die podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Today we're joined by Joshua Unruh of Pulp Diction Productions. Joshua writes stories for a living and also is the mastermind behind Superhero University, a series of seminars about superheroes. He was previously on to teach me about Batman way back in episode number 10. So thank you for coming back to the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm not sure. I feel like I'm stepping into the arena for this episode, whereas the last time I felt a little like I was on firmer ground. But, you know, it's fine. Let's fight it out. Totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about your history with Blade Runner. Why, why is this a film that appeals for you to talk about? Well, like I mentioned in the Batman episode, I am a huge noir guy um, and have been since I accidentally stumbled on The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. I read a bunch of mysteries when I was a kid, and then I accidentally checked out a Raymond Chandler mystery novel, and it changed my entire life. And so noir is just a big deal to me. So I came to hard-boiled detective fiction before film noir, but then when you Hmm. see Blade Runner, it's very obviously doing noir things on purpose, but in a cyberpunk sci-fi setting, which, when I first watched Blade Runner, was brand new and shiny and interesting. Right. So that's kind of, you know, then I played a bunch of cyberpunk role-playing games and, you know, read Neuromancer a hundred times and <laughs> and then the better versions of Blade Runner came out and all of our lives improved. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite video games, it absolutely steals the whole aesthetic, uh, Syndicate Wars. Yes. It has the same screens up with some of the same adverts showing and it, it's then also got adverts in it for Ghost in the Shell. So it's it's cribbing cyberpunk like hell. <laughs> Whoa, that's yeah. I remember playing that kinda, like not. Right. Uh, I have vague memories. I don't remember it quite swallowing its own tail that hard, but it's been a <laughs> yeah. minute. So I remember my my first interaction or or experience of Blade Runner was uh, being late at school one day in the computer lab, and there being some papers on the desk, and I just started reading them because I was a curious child. And one of them was a series of questions for a media studies class about the film Blade Runner. And it was things like, what do the unicorn, um, or what do the origami unicorns mean? Yeah, what does this yeah. tell us about? And all these, you know, the questions about the film. And I just remember reading that, and I must have been you know, maybe 11, and just going, wait, films can have this sort of theme and meaning and depth to them? Aren't films just shooting and running and jumping and stuff? <laughs> It's alarming when you discover theme. <laughs> yeah, this was first steps into a wider world. Um, and being like, oh, this is this must be a great film. This must be such a wonderful thing I have to go and see. So I totally overhyped it for myself before I first saw it. <laughs> that's, that's really fascinating. I think for me, since I came to it wanting it to just be science fiction noir, I basically got what I wanted the first time. Mm-hmm. But then the shine came off the apple pretty quickly until after the director's cut comes out. And I also had uh, a couple of philosophy classes where we talked about Blade Runner because there's some pretty serious, what does it mean to be human, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of base questions to it. And, um, And it was in there where somebody who had spent a lot more time with the director's cut than I had at that point really unpacked some of that, what does the unicorn mean, uh, you know, lots of lots of pointed out some things that I'll be hopefully sharing with you all today because they okay. continue to fascinate. 
So we've definitely seen the film and seen the film several times over the years. Mandy, how come you've never watched this? I didn't know I liked sci-fi until I was in high school. And by that time, this was really just some stupid old 80s action film that came out the year I was born. So I was never going to watch it. Okay. Well, that's hard (laughs) to argue with. (laughs) And science fiction now? Oh, no, I love sci-fi now. I discovered Robert Heinlein when I was in high school, and so I devoured okay. a lot of his books. And now, I mean, you you know me. You know what I like. I like fantasy. I like sci-fi. I like a little bit of everything now. So, Cool. All right. Well, before we get started on the conversation, I'm going to give a little bit of background on this. Y'all, there's a lot of information about Blade Runner out there, and so I tried to distill it down to just the really super important stuff. So Blade Runner is a 1982 sci-fi noir dystopian thriller based on Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Directed by Ridley Scott, it stars Harrison Ford, Edward James Olmos, and some other people I mostly had never heard of. You're killing me. Still had not heard of them. (laughs) Edward James Olmos is in it for like three minutes, but it's fine. (laughs) But wasn't he? Isn't he the character we'd like to see the sequel from? I don't care about uh, this Blade Runner twenty forty nine thing. I want to see the Gaff story. <laughs> I would be okay with that. I think <laughs> retiring and making origami animals around the world. Yes. My my co author and I, uh, Daniel Swenson, we're chatting while I was watching Blade Runner this time around, and we kind of spitballed the Gaff movie. That should have been the the sequel that came after this, you know, like circa 84, 85. And now we are very upset that it's not a thing that actually exists. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. We do this to ourselves all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, the screenplay was originally written by Hampton Fancher, but was later rewritten by David Peoples. But Fancher was then brought in again for additional rewrites. Philip K. Dick died shortly before the film was released, but he was supportive of it. He liked the script, and while he only saw a 20-minute special effects test reel, he thought Ridley Scott had brought the world of the novel to life. He said, I recognized it immediately. It was my own interior world. They caught it perfectly. Of the script, he said, After I finished reading the screenplay, I got the novel out and looked through it. The two reinforce each other so that someone who started with the novel would enjoy the movie and someone who started with the movie would enjoy the novel. Disagree. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll I'm just get there. I'm just lodging my complaint right now. No. Disagree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is a weird time to talk about death of the author. Ooh, Ooh too soon. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. All right. Moving right along. There are several versions of Blade Runner, though the five best known are the work print, the U.S. theatrical cut, the international cut, the director's cut, and the final cut. These five were compiled into a five-disc Ultimate Collector's Edition in 2007. The work print version was shown to test audiences prior to release of the film and was shown in 1990 and 1991 as an unapproved director's cut. The U.S. theatrical release included the happy ending and had the addition of Harrison Ford's voiceover. The international release included three scenes that were more violent than in the U.S. version. Yeah, blood and guts in England. <laughs> <laughs> like the like the violent bits aren't violent enough. <laughs> They're, the deaths of the replicants are pretty rough. I know, we'll get mm. to it. But man, for real, I'd l- I'm curious about this international release now. And it's, it's funny because um, American films, when, when I've seen edits of American films, there's more violence and less sex. 
you're prudish in that way. Whereas over here we do less sex, more violence. Who knows? No, the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) As I'm about to tell you, the final cut did have the um, added violence added back in. So I got to see those. (laughs) Equal opportunities murder. (laughs) Um, The Ridley Scott approved director's cut came about as a result of that unauthorized release of the work print version. It removed the voiceover, inserted a unicorn dream sequence, removed the happy ending, and gave more explicit suggestions that Deckard is a replicant. And the final cut contained the full footage of the original unicorn dream, added in the additional violence, and also removed the voiceover and happy ending. Thank God. (laughs) So you haven't seen the final cut, right, Joshua? I have not. 2007 was after the point that I had had all the Blade Runner I needed in my life. I didn't even know that there was such a thing until I started getting ready to rewatch it for this. I have watched Blade Runner a lot in my life, but I just, you know, drifted away. I didn't even know it existed. Okay. Yeah, Final Cut is very much the Ridley Scott version. He was allowed to go back and work on it and, and patch things up with Harrison Ford to get some input as well. Yeah. The the primary difference um, is that unicorn dream sequence. There mm. is one in the director's cut, but that one is just the unicorn. It doesn't cut back and forth between the unicorn and Deckard. Mm. And the original one that they put back in the final cut has cuts back and forth between them so that it's more explicitly meant to suggest that this is an implanted memory in Deckard's mind and he's a yeah. replicant. Yeah. So, yeah. It's well, that thing. holds up my personal theory, so I'm fine with that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, if anybody's listening and doesn't actually know what this movie is about, it's about a bounty hunter who searches for four replicants or robots, that have returned to Earth to find their creator. But are they robots? Really? It's very unclear. It is kind of unclear, but in my brain, this is an offshoot of Battlestar Galactica, and the replicants are basically Cylons. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that that's going to help you any. <laughs> well, I mean, the, silence, the Cylons are definitely robots in my brain, so <laughs> that means the replicants also are. I'll tell you what. Connecting it to BSG would at least prepare you for extremely disappointing endings when it comes to the original theatrical release. So, hey, you got that going for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. This is going to be so much fun, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can't tell if that's sarcastic. Um, a little bit of both. All right. <laughs> All right. So... I watched this movie um, by renting the theatrical release from Amazon, and then a friend of mine owned the Blu-ray of the final cut. Actually, he owns that whole five-disc collection, and we decided to watch the final cut, so I got to watch both versions. How did you watch it, Matthew? It's on Sky Cinema over here on a new channel they've launched called SkyFi. And which version did you watch? Uh, Theatrical and snippets of the final cut. Okay. And Joshua, how did you watch it? I rented it on Amazon. I watched the theatrical cut because you told me that I had to. And so I, you know, screwed my thumbs down and uh, and watched it. It's not it's not great. Director's cut forever. Thank you. I I mean, until I see the final until I see the final cut, I I may change my mind. (laughs) Uh, Did you rewatch the director's cut for this or did you just watch the theatrical cut this time? No, both a combination of not wanting to see anything Blade Runner after the theatrical cut and a lack of time oh. kept me from going. It's so bad. It's not good. 
okay. it's not good. The studio did not have faith in this movie, and they did not do it any favors in trying to shore it up. It's not good. It's not okay. good. Mandy, you used to hate sci-fi. Like, ugh, Men in Black, Independence Day, it's all rubbish. No, 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 no. You see how I'm referring to, to sci-fi that you grew up with from the <laughs> 90s. Um, what, but watching it now, coming to it uh, 30 years, however long after it was released, what were your expectations? I really didn't have any. I went into this completely blind. I had no idea what it was about. I didn't even know it had robots in it until Joshua posted something on Facebook last week and tagged me in it. I forgot that the whole point of your show is that you've never seen these things. Because, again, this is a movie that I have lived with my entire life. Right. The concept of spoilers was foreign to me. And then I was like, never mind. Don't look at this meme. <laughs> and it, it's fine. I don't even remember what it was now. It's just I knew that it, it meant the movie had robots in it. and Ish. I um, still ish. <laughs> After reading the introductory card at the beginning, at the end of the credits before the movie started, where it was kind of giving you the background, I got really excited and I thought this was going to be a really, really good movie and that I would really enjoy it. So I could tell that you went into this very blind from your notes because uh, your delight at the 80s vision of the future really, it kind of cracked me up because I mean, that's really what cyberpunk is top to bottom. There's a reason that Japan looms so large and that it's all, you know, megacorps and gritty rain-slicked streets and, it, you know, like, yep, yeah, that's, wow, you really didn't know what to expect if you were surprised by any of the Blade Runner aesthetic, which is not giving you a hard time. It was just like, look, she's just clapping her hands at it. It's just delightful. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Like, zero. All I knew was that Harrison Ford was in it. And for some reason, guys, this is ridiculous because... Harrison Ford got famous because of Star Wars, which is like sci-fi to the max. But for some reason in my brain, Harrison Ford doesn't do sci-fi. And so it never even occurred to me that this would be a sci-fi movie. Well, huh. let's <laughs> talk about that. Um, yeah. What's, uh, th there are a lot of famous people attached to this. Ridley Scott, who doesn't do sci-fi. Um, and <laughs> Rutger Hauer and Harrison Ford, none of whom who do sci-fi. So what is your experience of the main actors and director? Um, Ridley Scott, I have now seen Thelma and Louise, as everybody hopefully listened to that episode a few weeks back. And I have seen Alien, which obviously is sci-fi that I'm pretty sure came before this, but I'm not yeah, positive. Yeah, it's the film before this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Harrison Ford is the one I'm most familiar with. Um, but I've seen less of his stuff than I thought. I was really surprised. Um, Star Wars, obviously. Indie, obviously. Um, Air Force One, What Lies Beneath morning glory of all weird strange movies and ender's game i've seen nothing else that he's been in and i don't understand how that's possible but there we go i mean yeah just that guy's been in five bajillion movies so statistically speaking you should have fallen into more than that like just accidentally shown up for more harrison ford movies than that yeah, I don't think so. I went through his filmography, and it was all stuff I was completely unfamiliar with, except for these few things. And it shocked me, completely shocked me, because, I don't know, Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford, dude. You know? <laughs> I mean... Like, that guy does rom-coms and no sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, there's only one rom-com on the list, and it was a really terrible movie, but I watched it anyway. Wait, wait, which which one's... I'm thinking of, uh, uh, he did one when he was... Lost on an Island with Anne Heche? 
Is that the one? Six you're days, seven nights. Six days, seven nights. Oh, Ooh. I haven't seen that one, so I didn't even think about that one. I'm thinking about Morning Glory, which I believe also stars Diane Keaton and Rachel McAdams. Okay, that sounds like a rom com. I didn't. It's very much a rom com, <laughs> and it's so bizarre. So you've not seen Working Girl? No. Shut oh. up. Put it on the list. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we we found a film in Mandy's oeuvre. Okay. <laughs> Um, our, our replicant team, Sean Young, Daryl Hannah, Rutger Hauer, and the chap who played Leon, uh, Brian James. <laughs> so, Sean Young, I had no idea who she is. I looked her up, and I still don't know who she is. The guy who played Leon looks vaguely familiar, but he kind of looks like that guy who plays some random crazy-eyed guy in random movies. Fuck dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why he looks familiar to you. He's pretty... He's he got He got around. Yeah. Uh, Joanna Cassidy. I'm right on top of that, Rose. I know her from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. And that's basically it. Daryl Hannah. I know of her. I've seen a few things that she's been in. Like, I know she played Mermaid, but I've never actually seen Splash. Oh, that and... might be another one for the list. Really? I, I, I can't even name something else that she's been. I know I've seen her and stuff. I know I have. I just, I can't name it right now. And then the guy who played Roy, I've seen him in a few things, but he's never really like a main character. And so I wasn't <gasps> really. Oh my. <laughs> All right. Back up from Matthew. Let him go. So so one of his quite famous roles that, that he is renowned for at conventions throughout the years, uh, a, a small film that you might not have heard of called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> I totally miss that. <laughs> I fail. Wow. Did Mandy an F today? Like, I was so excited. I have another Buffy reference ready to go for this. And I totally missed that one. Oh, my God. I was like, wow, she's really reaching for that reference. That's that's interesting. Yeah, we got to talk about this house. Like, there's not a whole yeah. actor we could talk about. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, I completely missed it. Wow. Okay. So, yes, there's that. Uh, Daryl Hannah uh, is in a great film with Steve Martin that we will watch at some point. Um, and, of course, she's in Kill Bill, Volume 2. I have seen Kill Bill. I don't remember Daryl Hannah being in it, but I don't remember anybody being in it besides the Kung Fu guy and Uma Thurman, so... <laughs> That's I mean... a rock-solid response to Kill Bill, Volume 2. <laughs> okay. My experience of actually watching other adaptations of Philip K. Dick's work, um, I saw Minority Report many, many years ago, and then I started watching the now-canceled television adaptation from a few years back. And that's all. Yeah, that never came out over here. That was a shame. I think the TV show is better than the movie, but it just wasn't the right time for that to be popular in the States right now. So it just didn't work. Okay. And and of everything uh, that I put on the list, so things like Total Recall, Paycheck, A Scanner Darkly, Minority Report is the one to see. It's done very well and turned into a much uh, a grander story. So Blade Runner, Mandy, did you enjoy and what did you think of Blade Runner? My only possible answer to that question is that I was intrigued by it. Could you elaborate on what intrigued you, please? The idea, what they were trying to do was really good. What we got was not. <laughs> I mean, okay, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I feel like the execution was just not really good. As far as a story slash narrative perspective, the visuals were fantastic. I loved watching it, but actually 
the content was not something that I super enjoyed, if that makes sense. It's, it's hard to differentiate between those two things, but when I watch this movie, they are so completely separate to me that it's bizarre. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. Um, there is not a lot there. And, and you're absolutely right to say they have a very good idea, a good sort of set for a story. But they they, they open with the idea of there are fake people and there are questions around this, but we might not really explore them too deeply. It's all about the idea and then the aesthetic of that idea, but not the the discussion of what it necessarily means to be human or not human, robot, android, clone, whatever they are. Um, and and then there's lots of other ideas presented in this world about the uh, the creation of animals and, and can you own the animals in a different way than the, the uh, replicants are maybe people or not people. The comparisons to they have a short shelf life, if you will, and there's this person who has a disease that's going to kill him young as well. That's a nice comparison. It's a nice way to go, but they don't explore that any further than going, oh, he's got a... a, a short life expectancy as well. Well, what about that, folks? <laughs> I feel like, I mean, that's the whole movie in a nutshell, is they don't explore anything. They tell mm. us something, but they don't explain it. They don't go deeper. They don't tell us why. Like, we know that for some reason, Deckard falls in love with Rachel. We don't know why. Oh, I don't think no so, idea. but okay. No. You don't think he fell in love with her, or you don't think Not they tell us why? even a little bit, no. <laughs> But that's because Deckard is an awful human being, and that's well, yes, true whether he he's a replicant or not. <laughs> okay, that is fair enough, because he really is, and I hate him. But they just, they do a whole lot of telling us that we're supposed to understand something without giving us anything else about it. There's no background, there's no explanation, there's no nothing, it's just, this is it. And that's bad storytelling to me. And so I, I had a really hard time. I mean, there was so little dialogue in this. And then once you take the voiceover out, it's even worse. And so you you just you don't know what you're supposed to really be getting out of this story. Now that is 100% accurate and why I reject the rest of your premise. Can I unpack one thing you've just said? Yes. Um, you've said it's even worse when you take out the voiceover. Yes. Do you think it's better with the voiceover? Uh, well, okay, yes and no. I think the voiceover is bad. I think it's really okay. bad. I think the writing of the voiceover was bad, and I think the performance of the voiceover was bad. It's very clear that Harrison Ford was not happy that he had to do this voiceover, and that comes yeah. through. That makes it terrible. What I like about the voiceover is that it gives us information that we needed as a viewer that the movie should have been able to give us without the voiceover. I feel like if I had watched the final cut first, I would have been super confused about a lot of things because at least the voiceover gave us background information that as a first time viewer, I needed. Like what? Because I'm legitimately confused by that statement. <laughs> yeah, there are bits of the voiceover that are quite interesting. The, the uh, explanation about the personalities of Gaff and the police chief. I quite enjoy that and sort of the fitting in for the world of them. When I think of the voiceover, I always end up thinking about the ending. And that is bad. The whole happy ending is not necessary and is cribbed from another film. <laughs> so I think it also, I'm going to attempt to give 
Harrison Ford the benefit of the doubt on something because the voiceover is something I used to until very recently defend. Not so much because of the content of it, but because I really love the trappings of original flavor film noir, right? Like uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart doing a voiceover telling us that I may not have liked my partner, but when somebody kills your partner, by God, you do something about it. You know, that kind of stuff. And Bogart always delivers that stuff real deadpan, but they're still acting. And maybe Harrison Ford was trying to do that and just didn't do it well. That's as close to the benefit of the doubt on the voiceovers as I can give. Otherwise, they are a travesty. Yeah, there's all sorts of stories of him falling out with Ridley Scott and Ridley Scott refusing to talk to him and passing messages through producers and so on. So I think whether he liked the voiceover or not, Harrison Ford did not enjoy working on this film very much. I've kind of avoided a lot of the background story beyond just that kind of, you know, the the stuff you get like that over time. Like I haven't done a deep dive into this, but yeah, the constant falling out between actors and Ridley Scott feels like an ongoing Ridley Scott uh, theme. So <laughs> it may not always be, you know, outrageous and terrible, but he does sound like he's tough to work with and for. Mm. He's a Yorkshireman. What can you do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the voiceovers give us emotion from Deckard, uh, reasons why he stopped being a Blade Runner, that he didn't like killing, and that he quit for a reason. And without that voiceover, you don't get that at all. You just get this tough guy who's willing to shoot a woman in the back. What about the panic attack that he's having that he has to drink himself through after? Like, he's already not in good shape after he kills. Why can I not remember any of the replicants' names except for Roy? Uh, Zora Prezorion. Zora, yes. Yeah, when, when, after he kills Zora, he's already clearly going to have to drink his way through that. It didn't come across that way to me. Hmm... Hmm. Okay. And and I think some of this is leaning into why uh, why I have this sort of dichotomy with the film. I, I, cards on the table, I don't really enjoy this film. I think not a lot happens and I think the sci-fi exploration is not done as well as many other things and, and as well as is implied. And I think it would work better if this was a pure film noir, if they lost some of the cyberpunk sci-fi elements. Now, how you do that when you have robot clone replicant things, I don't know. (laughs) Some sort of 1920s gumshoe (laughs) hunting down killer robot clones. Well, I mean, the way that you do that is that you set set it in San Francisco and you make him on the Chinatown beat. It's the Chinatown prequel. I mean, it's about completely different things than Chinatown, obviously. (laughs) But I mean, it's the Chinatown prequel where they insinuate that uh, Jack Geats was on the Chinatown beat. And so he is a white cop policing Chinese people when those two sets of people were not getting along very well. I think that's, you basically make it racial, which again is a thing that they did with uh, Deckard's Lieutenant in the heavy handed and awful voiceover. Yeah. uh, When they make it clear that he uses skin job as a pejorative and yet Mm. nobody actually thinks they're people. So can you really call robots by something mean you know like that's this is one of the reasons the voiceover doesn't work it makes the rest of the film's ambiguity dumber when instead it's just ambiguous which i think is why i reject your premise of not a lot happens a lot happens it just doesn't tell you how to feel about any of it a lot does not happen in this movie i'm sorry (laughs) 
I have to disagree with you on that. But before we finish that conversation, there is another voiceover that I I do really like, and I missed it when it wasn't there. Um, right after Roy dies, Deckard's voiceover gives us that information where he says, I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life. Anybody's life. My life. All he'd wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch him die. I like that. It Mm. gave more purpose to the replicants being on Earth than we had ever gotten in the rest of the movie. All I knew was that they didn't want to die. That's all I knew. They came back and they didn't want to die. And they didn't really want to kill people or hurt anybody. They just didn't want to die. But this voiceover gave more humanity to them than anything else we got in the movie. And I missed it when it wasn't there. Yeah, it's... um... Possibly not the right word, but it does humanize him more than most of the rest of the film does. Yeah, I mean, because I didn't care that any of these... (sighs) Honestly, I didn't care that anybody got hurt or anybody died in this movie. (laughs) I was not emotional. Actually, you know what? That's not true. I was sad that Sebastian died. Uh, But the rest of them, I wasn't emotionally invested in them because the movie didn't give me a reason to be. They They didn't let me get to know any of these characters enough to care about them. And I suppose that's uh, possibly where I was going to. The film makes Roy, as much as he seems very violent and is hunting him down with a sort of scary childhood rhyme about killing him, um, it makes him more sympathetic because he is the one about to die and is just trying to find a way to carry on. Now, like you say, he kills Sebastian and he kills Tyrell. But that's the film giving us reasons not to like him other than, well, he's the one who's about to die and doesn't know why he's about to die. Well, there's nobody likable in the movie, and that's on purpose. Except for Rachel. She's kind of likable. Kind of. And the owl. The owl's pretty. (laughs) I mean, that's the... So, there are no likable characters in this. And if we got any more of the replicants, it would lose track of the fact that this is Deckard's story, and that it is Deckard who is asking what it means to be a human being, since he is shooting things that look like human beings and nobody else treats them like human beings. Okay, but when did he actually ask what it was what it means to be human? You don't actually have to have someone ask that question out loud. The movie asks that question. The movie wanted to ask that question, but I don't no, think it, it succeeded. You have actual human beings running around with four-year lifespans that were given to them by other people, and all they want to do is live longer than the four years that they have. And you have... See, the reason I hate that voiceover at the end with uh, with Deckard is because it undermines the much better and much more poetic thing we got from Roy about how all of these amazing things he saw, all of these experiences, all of these things that make him human are just going to go away. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost 
in time. Like tears in rain. This is a movie about nihilism, <laughs> amongst other things. Because it's the truth for everybody. Everybody in the movie is going to die and everything that they saw that made them uniquely human is going to go away. Replicant or regular biological human being. Yeah, Gaff has a line about that, about everyone's going to die. No one's coming out of this. And, and I think, like you say, yes, it is about nihilism. As Mandy says, it doesn't go as far as it should to discuss that. It wants to, but it ends up spending too much time on the pretty visuals, perhaps. So I don't think that the movie actually meant to address any of that. It wanted you all to come out and talk about it, right? Like it's not, it does not ask questions and then answer them in any kind of pat way. It raises questions and leaves them for people to come out and talk about. Unfortunately, between studio meddling and marketing and stuff, it turned into a Harrison Ford action movie, which it clearly is not. It is not an action movie. Yeah, and, and like you said, I don't think it asks those questions, either explicitly or implicitly. It raises them as an idea, but then it doesn't do any conversation of them. Yeah, which is not a failing of the movie. You may want the movie to be a different thing than what, it, than what Ridley Scott meant for it to be. I think whether or not the movie intended to raise these questions or to even make us as the viewer have these questions is if it was clear that the replicants kind of are human and to me that was never clear that was never until you brought it up that was never even something i considered because but look in, at them. In, it well it doesn't matter in the the very first information that we get from this movie is the first sentence of that introductory title card and that title card starts with this sentence Early in the 21st century, the Tyrell Corporation advanced robot evolution into the nexus phase, a being virtually identical to a human known as a replicant. It still calls them a robot. And so for me, they were never human. I never once considered that these were anything other than robots who just look human and feel human. And then in the case of Rachel believed she was human and so I had some empathy for her there and I was super pissed off at Deggard for being cruel to her about it but for me it was never about humans versus humans because to me they're robots and so if the movie wanted me to go deeper than that then it needed to do a better job but you just said that they were robots that look human and feel human and think they're human what else literally do you need in order for them to be human and, and Tyrell actually makes this explicit. More human than human. That's our goal here at Tyrell. That's a good question. And my real world answer would be very different from my Blade Runner answer. <laughs> Interesting. Is... I'm not sure mine would be. So <laughs> fascinating. I mean, in the real world, I would probably like fight to the death for like robot equal rights. But in this movie, I'm not going to do that because that's not the way it was presented to me. Well, no one's actually fighting for equal rights. It's a very personal story about Deckard and Roy. Well, mostly Deckard, but also Roy. So the voiceover adds something at the end to help um, humanize Deckard somewhat. And the problem is, throughout this film, it's setting it up as a film noir that we're supposed to follow him even though he's a uh, grouchy, grizzled, curmudgeonly, has a bad past type 
But actually, some of what the film is doing is making the replicants seem more sympathetic. Like, they're the ones who who have an inciting incident, who actually want something from this film. He's just a <laughs> grumpy what's-it who was told to shoot them down and goes and shoots them down. There's more to it than that, obviously. Matthew, I think that's really interesting. And it goes back to something that Joshua said just a few minutes ago when he, he was trying to steer the conversation back into saying that this movie is Deckard's story and not the replicant's story. And when I was you know looking up articles and things kind of about this movie to get more insight and different perspectives of kind of what was going on, I found this really interesting article that's actually on RogerEbert.com, but Roger Ebert didn't write it. And it's an article that basically comes to the conclusion that Deckard is the bad guy. Every single thing that he does in the film is dishonorable, motivated by pure self-interest, or both. And so if that's the case, it asks, who's the hero of the movie? And the author's response is, of course, it has to be Roy Batty. He's the polar opposite of Deckard. He he functions like a family with his other replicants. When When they die, he grieves. You know, he actually shows anguish when he murders Tyrell. And actually, that's something I noted in my thoughts, was that at least he was upset about murdering Tyrell. Deckard was not upset about raping Rachel. (laughs) You know, so the the two are absolutely complete polar opposites. And I find that fascinating that what the movie is wanting us to see is not necessarily what's there. I'm intrigued by the question of who's the hero as though you need one in a noir film. Because what you said there, what that article says about Deckard does not say he's not the hero. It says he is a noir protagonist. Unlikable, does everything for self-interest or for self-preservation. I mean, there's a reason that I really prefer a lot of the hard-boiled detective stories where at least the main character has a tarnished heart of gold. But by and large, that's basically a noir protagonist. There is no heart of gold. There's just, I'm in over my head self-preservation and self-interest, pretty much a terrible human being. Do you still get the good guy, bad guy vibe from a noir novel if you're reading noir? It depends, but not usually. You usually get bad guy, worse guy. And even then, it might just be, boy, everybody pretty much is terrible. Okay. Which I do think fits Blade Runner. I, I do think that Roy is significantly more sympathetic than Deckard, but that doesn't make him... I mean, I guess some platonic ideal of sympathetic. It's just, boy, there are a lot of unsympathetic people in this movie. Okay, I think that's fair. Matthew, I think you have more experience with film noir, maybe, just uh, from some of the things we've said here today. Would Would you agree with me about film noir protagonists or just noir protagonists in general? Or am I just, have I just become some sort of blind Blade Runner apologist? I think the stereotypical tropiness of... A, a noir protagonist, yes, that's that's how they're written. Chain smoking, heavy drinking, Bob Hoskins in Roger Rabbit. Right, he is absolutely <laughs> a parody of that thing. Yes, but this can be done very well. <laughs> but there's the, the the problem with that is it's the stereotypical trope. So everyone's done it to death, and it's there, there's not there's not much air left in that room. I would enjoy this film significantly more. I think if if we told it from the other perspective, if we had these replicants who were coming to Earth for purposes, reasons. And they were being hunted down by the uh, grouchy cop who kind of maybe possibly sympathised with them, but also was doing the job he'd been sent out to do. 
And that's, no, I, that, I that leads a lot more into other sci-fi adaptations. Minority Report has an element of that as well. So I, I feel like that would be a better way to show this story. I agree. It's definitely a better way to make a point with this story, which, which is why I come back around to, for better or worse, I think this is a story that is not trying to make a point. It wants you to think and talk about it. And that may not be a thing that you want from a Harrison Ford sci-fi piece which i also understand (laughs) i think i agree with matthew on this one that the story itself would be better if we had sympathetic characters if we if we had a reason to care about anybody who was on the screen and they could have done that had they kind of flipped the perspective the, the point of view that we were through you know, if we were watching this from Roy's perspective, if we had come into the story with Roy and these other, I guess at that point, five other replicants as they were commandeering the ship and coming back to Earth and kind of understanding why they were doing this and then watching them struggle to complete this quest that they've given themselves because they just want to live, I feel like that would have been a really, really good story. But it wouldn't be a nihilistic one. Oh, they still die in the end. Well, that, but that's not enough to make it nihilistic. Just everybody dying at the end isn't enough. What we have to be shown all along the way is that everyone in this thing, replicant or not, is a broken, imperfect, extremely human person. And that includes the lieutenant, Deckard, all the replicants, Tyrell, Rachel, everybody except the owl. <laughs> I mean, I think we still could have gotten that, though, because I'm not suggesting that we change the specific plot points. I'm just suggesting mm. we change how we see them. So they Perspective still... changes everything in this story, though. I, I mean, the, the, the point of view from which we told this, if we made Roy the sympathetic protagonist, then we would not come out thinking so much about how everyone is a broken difficult to live with making hard decisions human being we would come out saying deckard's the bad guy perhaps especially at the end when roy gives up on his own future he doesn't have much of it left but his last act is saving someone who doesn't deserve to be saved if we have followed him that entire time then that doesn't become an act with ambiguous moral questions it becomes a redemptive act Okay, so maybe the problem is that I'm just not the target demographic for this movie because even even with Roy with Roy's death, I was disappointed. I thought this was very anticlimactic. I thought this is ridiculous because we had four replicants who have come to do this thing and they all die so kind of easily. Exactly. And it it just it was anticlimactic and it 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 wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't something that I cared to see or understood why I was supposed to care. So maybe it's just that simple. I'm not the target demographic. I, I think being the target demographic doesn't help. Um, this is <laughs> this is dark yet interesting cyberpunk science fiction. This was made for me and I do not enjoy this film. I, I watch it every few years just as a... Well, maybe I'll like it now. <laughs> Every time I come away going, nope, still the same film. Um, and that's watching different versions of the film each time. So I think doing this as uh, some other some other story that adds uh, more detail to that story, that fleshes out the plot itself a little bit more, 
would I, I think it would help the film a lot and, and allow us to have some of these conversations because we're actually interested in them coming out of it. Whereas like this is probably the most I've ever spoken to anyone about Blade Runner because usually it's like, oh, I watched Blade Runner again. Oh, how was it? Yeah, still the same. <laughs> For what it's worth, I think enjoy is probably not quite the right word that I would use for me watching Blade Runner. It's not, I'm not going to sit down and pop it in just for giggles like I would 1999's The Mummy or um, Speed Racer or something. I, I enjoy very much the thoughts that I have, the conversations I have. It's interesting you say this is the most you've ever talked about Blade Runner. This is every time I talk about Blade Runner. Every time I've talked about Blade Runner since college, this is the conversation that I have about Blade Runner. And honestly, maybe even before then, uh, I just remember it becoming very much a, a part of my ongoing deeper thought nerd conversations, po- you know, in that in my mid 20s. So that's that's very it's just interesting to hear you say that, because this the conversation we're having right now, literally every conversation I have about Blade Runner. Okay, so well, let's move past this conversation. Okay, and and I mean, because we're not going to come to any resolution other than agree to disagree on this. I think. And no, so I think it's uh, what what is I, I think Lonnie Lonnie Diane Rich over at Chipper, she has used the phrase. I'm trying to think. What did she call it? It's not first principles, but it's something about that, like the thing that you came to the story for. And if you came here wanting something else, then it's. It's not going to make it right. Like there's nothing going on in the thing that's going to make it better if you can't. Well, you can cut all of this since I can't remember the actual phrase that she used. <laughs> it's been really used. It's been a really useful conversation because it's like if I show up for a rom-com expecting it to be an action movie, it could be the greatest rom-com ever made. It's not going to be what I showed up for, you know. Right. Um, and now I can't, I can't think. She has magic words for this. She has jargon. Forget she it. Does. Never mind. I'm sorry. She does. And, and I've heard her say it, and I can't think of it right now either. So Okay, good. Um, it's not just me. It's not um. just you. But I will say, considering that I, I did come into this blind, I didn't have expectations. All I knew was that it was sci-fi. And I guess maybe I was expecting it to be more sci-fi than it was. Although it tried really hard to be sci-fi, you guys. <laughs> when, you say, when you say so. science fiction, what what is your expectation for science fiction? Is it just the like the stuff hanging around it, or does it have something to do with the stories that are told? For instance, I don't mean to put you on, I didn't mean to put you on like right in the spotlight, hard question. But as an example, you said Star Wars as science fiction, and it isn't. It's space opera or science fantasy. There's no actual, it's not a, there's no thinking. And science fiction is a intellectual pursuit. Or it was before the genre lines blurred to the point of being meaningless, probably because of Star Wars. <laughs> so from my perspective, anything that takes place in space is going to be science fiction. Right. Okay. I mean, it may have other subgenres like space opera, space western, like Firefly. Still all science fiction to me. Okay. If it's got robots, it's science fiction. If it's got scientifically advanced technology that we do not currently have, that is science fiction to me. Okay, but but modern uh, existing technology extrapolated to a future version of yeah. So it's not it's it's not like a magic version of. No, no. I mean, it, it has to be. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's I don't know. Exactly I don't my know. Of it too. <laughs> I don't know. I guess Star Wars is just, Star Wars takes place in space and has spaceships and. But it also all has wizards. Like that. It has 
magic space wizards. Yeah, <laughs> they're I mean, in space, is, so it's science fiction. Okay, this is not. I, I this is not for winning rhetorical points, but it is like when I when I say I'm showing up for the science fiction movie, it's because it's going to make me uh, think these thoughts and have these conversations and things. Um, and I might do that. I have had far too many philosophical conversations about Star Wars, but that wasn't its primary purpose, you know. Um, and I think, which is fine. Again, this is not for winning rhetorical points, but I think showing up for a thing that is saying, this is what the future might look like. What does it say about us now? I, that's a science fiction question. Okay. I know I'm not alone in the whole world with this. <laughs> no, 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 I'm certain you're not. It's just, I think that... With this particular conversation and the story and what it's trying to say and who it's trying to say it to, I think we're just coming at it from two completely different Absolutely. perspectives and, and we're at an impasse. And, and so I think we should move on to more specific conversations about things that are in the movie. Um, some of the questions that it brings up, I know one that you really want to talk about is, is Deckard a replicant? And I think that's fascinating and that's a yeah. conversation that's to be had. I'm curious if that if the answer to that changes your enjoyment or perspective on the movie at all. Either way. Um no, I don't think it does. Okay. But mostly because well, no, I don't think it does. Um so I watched the theatrical version first and the the only thing actually made me consider it in the theatrical version was the throwaway line when Rachel asked Deckard if he's ever taken the test himself. There's nothing else that's explicit. Having watched the final cut now and kind of going back to the theatrical version, you know, wondering about his obsession with the photographs and that sort of mm -hmm. thing kind of makes you wonder as well. But you don't pick up on that in the theatrical release as it's presented. It's just that one line. And then once you move on to the other versions, the, f the final cut and the director's cut, where they've, they've put that unicorn dream in and he, you understand his obsession with the photos a little bit more and how that relates to Leon's obsession with photos and Rachel's obsession with photos. And you kind of start to wonder. And in one of the versions I read this, it wasn't in either of the versions that I watched, but Gaff has a line or maybe it was a deleted scene that didn't make it into any of the versions, but Gaff has a line that's pretty specific about whether or not Deckard is a man or not, and I can't recall what it is right off the top of my head. And so after I watched these, I went and kind of looked to see how much of a thing this actually is in conversation around the movie, and holy crap, everybody has an opinion on this. And Ridley Scott's opinion is, yes, he is actually a replicant. Harrison's Ford, Harrison Ford's opinion is, no, he's not. And so I think it's really just up to the viewer, honestly. Although that may change considering the sequel's coming out next week. Yeah. And I think that's we'll find out for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I certainly the argument for whether or not he's a replicant changes wildly depending on the version that you're watching. Uh, but I think there's a ton of textual evidence for him being a replicant even in the theatrical, which is the weakest argument. Did anything you read talk about the totem animals? No. Okay. Matthew, are you familiar with this? The totem animals in Blade Runner? Uh, familiar, yes. <laughs> Completely aware of, no, it's been a long time since I've read on this film. Sure. So everybody who's a replicant has a totem animal. 
except for two people. Deckard, who has two, and Tyrell, who created all of the uh, all the replicants. Like, he's the, basically, god of replicants. You know, the creator. Capital C. And Deckard gets two, and they're both mythological. One is the unicorn, and again, that's much more explicit, depending on the version you're watching. But you may recall at the very beginning, he is introduced by a giant neon dragon hovering over him uh, at the eatery. Yeah, I didn't notice. Yeah, well, it's literally the first, it's the first non-Leon part of the film. You know, like, it's the it's the introduction, and it is, the camera starts on the dragon and then pans down to, you know, to the eatery and Deckard. And so it's way before you would start paying attention to that kind of thing. That's definitely a second or third or hundredth watch. Okay. Uh, but a lot of the other ones are very are obvious, right? Zora has a snake, and um, Leon has the tortoise that freaks him out. You know, um, Batty Roy is howling like a wolf as he hunts, as he hunts Deckard, and then you've got a very raccoon, not just with the face paint, but with the washing of the food in Daryl Hannah in um, Pris, and then Tyrell gets the. Rachel has the spider in the story and then Tyrell gets one which is a little bit of a weird muddy water thing except that he is the god of replicants and his uh his totem animal is the owl right wisdom soaring above I see all things so this is one of the I don't know I I feel like that counts as textual but you might say that's subtextual explanation for uh for Deckard's replicant status I'm going to say that's completely subtextual, and I think most of that is coincidence and not specifically anything. Oh, no, but there's no way. There's no I, way. I, eh, okay. It, it, it feels like people reading death into the oranges in The Godfather. Yeah, a, yes, l- yeah, a little bit. If you want to see it, but it's also, you know, they're from Sicily, where they grow lots of citrus fruits. <laughs> I do not find those comparable, but okay. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's so specific that everyone has an animal or an animal aspect. But just because you have a memory of watching a spider doesn't mean you have an animal or an animal aspect. It does in the context of this movie where everybody who is not a quote-unquote real person also has an animal or animal aspect. Okay. (laughs) That's all I can say is okay. I, I don't see it. I will say what I did see, and actually when I went back and watched this the second time, I paid super attention to the eye light of the replicants mm. because it was it was very, very heavy-handed that they were giving that orange eye light to the replicants, even though mm-hmm. they didn't have it all the time, but they got it in various stages. And you saw it in all of the replicants, and that was one of the ways to, to tell the difference. And I didn't notice it really... I noticed that there was a lot of eye light, but I didn't notice the connection between the eye light and the replicants until the owl showed up the first time. And then I realized what they were doing. There's a ton of eye stuff all through this movie. And so when I watched it the second time, I was actually specifically watching Harrison Ford's eyes the whole time trying to see, is there ever orange eye light in Harrison Ford's eyes? Would they do that to, you know, without really calling attention to it or whatever? Mm. And there was one scene only one and it was so ambiguous that I still don't know if he had orange eyeliner or not because she did it was actually in that scene the one that you posted the screenshot for on Facebook yes it was in that scene where she had it and he had just a little bit there but it's entirely possible that that's just because literally the light that was shining in her face was reflecting on the actor's face 
because it was so subtle that I couldn't figure out if it was done intentionally or not. And that is the only place that I saw it, and I looked for it in every single scene where we could see his eyes with light to see if there was orange or not. And it just it wasn't enough for me to know for sure, but I think a lot of people probably say, yes, it was intentional, and other people are probably like me and say, eh, I don't know. But I thought it was a really cool idea. It's hard to tell because there's so many different versions of the movie with varying levels of control by the person who would be making that kind of definitive decision, too. Right. I, the the philosophical conversations of Blade Runner are not helped by the fact that, stu- you know, that the, the studio showed up and was like, oh, my God, we're going to lose our ass on this movie quick. Make some changes so that people will go. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure they were wrong about that. <laughs> it didn't help. They didn't help. Yeah. I usually make the argument, not just from textual reasons, but I make the argument that Deckard is a replicant because if you want an answer from Blade Runner about what does it mean to be human, that's the answer. Is that you made a robot, air quotes, I guess android is probably closer to it since they're so human-like, but you made a robot that was to specifically to hunt other robots and he developed empathy for them, not knowing that he was one of them. And he developed empathy for them because he started to think of them as human, which means that he would also be thinking of himself as human. And it's like this big giant circle of, well, that's that's the answer. That's what it means to be human. Empathy. Feeling for other humans. So if you want an answer from Blade Runner, that is one of the reasons I make an argument for him being a replicant because it kind of closes that loop. I can see that. But I'm still going to go with the idea that the movie is not explicit and it's up to the individual viewer. No, I agree with that too. Like so much of it, it's just suggested. Yeah. Okay, can we talk about why Deckard's a really, really terrible human being? And I say human being in quotes since he may not be human. (laughs) (laughs) Or he still is even if he's a replicant. Like that's what I'm saying. But yeah, he's pretty (laughs) terrible. He's pretty awful. There's a laundry list of ways he's terrible. I mean, he was pretty awful anyway just because of the way... I mean, he's angry all the time, and he's just mean to people. And I got super mad at him when when Rachel came to his house really to get confirmation that, that she is a replicant and has never known it. And he's just taunting her with it. And he's just, like, not being – he's not being empathetic with her at all. He's just like, yep, you're fake, and your memories aren't real. That was Tyrell, his niece. You're not human. You're whatever. You know, and he's like – She's crying, and he's just like, yeah, whatever. And it just infuriated me. And so that's the moment that I really started to super dislike him. But then the next big scene with Rachel, he basically rapes her. Oh, there's no basically. And I'm he's... so not okay with it. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and that's where I think he doesn't have empathy for the replicants, because at that point he is completely buying into and leaning into these are things that have been made in a factory or lab or something she's not real she can't give consent because she's not a person she is a thing yeah that's exactly exactly what i was feeling there is Mm. that he the reason he was making her say all of those things is because he was looking at her as an it Mm -hmm. as if you have to do what i tell you and so i'm going to tell you to say all these things for my enjoyment let me spin that a slightly different way So, Deckard is suffering from PTSD, from having to kill all of these things that he had 
first convinced himself weren't people and then came to feel that they were. So he is suffering from PTSD. He still has more replicants to go go after, and it's getting harder for him all the time. And now this does not make him a better person because he is still using Rachel for his own benefit, but it is not for an enjoyment or a sexual benefit. He is making her an object in an effort to objectify the other replicants that he still has to go out and murder. This does not make him better. It makes him nuanced. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing about this where it's not rape and it's not him being awful. Right, right. I didn't want, I didn't want it to accidentally hear like I was defending any of his life choices there. But <laughs> I think the inclusion of it is important. And it's interesting, Mandy, because if, if you're not looking at this film to ask the questions about what does it mean to be a human and are they things, are they people... The, the rape is more ambiguous, but at this point you are, I think, very much, no, this is rape, she could have consented or not, and he did a thing that was bad to her. So I think in that way it is asking that question of you. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I am. If, if he can rape her, then she is a person that she sh- can give consent. And she did not. I mean, mm. in fact, she kind of specifically said no. And it just, I, I think, Joshua, you're kind of extra textualizing what you see when you look at the character of Deckard um, by saying things like he's suffering from PTSD. That's well, not textual. I can point to specific scenes. Like, again, he is shaking and terrified after he kills Zora. He is not enjoying his, his life. He has to. He's planning to drink his way through it. She has also just tried to kill him. It's not just from the killing. That is an action sequence, and he's coming out of that with the adrenaline and feelings of, I almost died there. Sure, but we also come off of him saying, I, well, again, depending on your version, I quit for a reason, or, you, you know, being uncomfortable when they're referred to as skin jobs, even without the voiceover. I... Okay, I'm not I'm not going to say that it's because uh, c- very little is explicit, but I don't think mm-hmm. that I'm pulling it from thin air either. I think the reason that he stopped being a Blade Runner is because he couldn't handle all the ki- well, and they specifically make a deal about how he's a killer, a murderer, a whatever, and he's he's a he's a one man slaughterhouse, one man slaughterhouse, <laughs> and right right in the opening text is the they do not call this murder, they call it retirement, and you're invited to ask whether that's legitimate or not. So I think maybe one of my questions is, would I have really understood that that Deckard quit because he was empathetic with the replicants if I hadn't had that voiceover in the first version that I watched? And I'm not sure that I would have, honestly. And, and maybe I'm not giving myself or the movie enough credit there, but without the voiceover, Harrison Ford doesn't show a ton of emotion ever in this movie other than when he's angry and gets ready to rape Rachel. Hey, uh, P.S. Deckard, not a good guy. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. But I mean, so my point is, though, is are we actually shown textually on screen without the voiceover that he quit because he couldn't deal with it anymore? Because his words are just, "I, I was quit when I walked in here and I'm doubly quit now. I, I don't think they give us, exactly like Joshua says, anything explicit to go down some of these routes. 
Um, knowing, knowing you as I do and having watched one or two films with you in the past, <laughs> yes, I think you would have read it because I think you would have gotten more having had a bit more ambiguity to, from the start. Okay. I think you, you would have been mm. looking for it more rather than being given that answer. Okay. That's, that's Maybe. If, if, I, I know that wasn't the question right then, but before that you said, would I have? Yes, I think you would have because there is sometimes a problem when a film gives you an answer like that. So maybe, perhaps. Okay. I mean, from a certain perspective, if they say, and I, and this is such a thing that nobody in 1982 would have been talking about, but if you come at it from he's suffering from PTSD, then that is to a certain extent what the movie is about at that point, right? I mean, again, there's a lot of choices after that. But I mean, if you say that's why he quit, he's got PTSD. Or if you, whereas Blade Runner really likes its ambiguity. It really does. It really does. And and I'll tell you one place where it does like its ambiguity. You can see I'm segueing out of some of the conversation here. <laughs> um, a place that it really likes its ambiguity. It's called Blade Runner. And they're called Blade Runners. And there's no explanation for why they're called Blade Runners. It's a terrible name. It's a terrible name for the film. And it's a terrible name for the job they do. It's true. The, the story is that Ridley Scott liked the phrase. Yep. <laughs> but, but it does not describe anything. It was used as a title of something completely unrelated, and he liked it so much that he optioned the rights to use it for the movie. <laughs> On one hand, now now I have to think about my own experience, because this has been since the 80s that I have been taking in this media. But on the surface, I would have said, yeah, but it's the most cyberpunk-sounding thing ever. And now I'm wondering, <laughs> is it the most cyberpunk-sounding thing ever because he picked it out of a hat for this movie? Yeah, I mean, th- this is what Ready Player One would have been called had Ready Player One, had Blade Runner not already been taken. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Ready Blade Runner One. I don't know. So, um, I, there is a lot to unpack in this film. Um, and I, I quite like the coming to it from very different perspectives. But there are there is a lot of good about this film. Um, uh, Mandy, what were the things you really enjoyed about it? The visuals were absolutely spectacular, I will say. Mm. I found a quote from actually Roger Ebert, who very, very explicitly says in his original review how I feel about this movie. And so it's kind of a, a bad thing and a great thing all at once. So I'm just going to read it. And Is, is he negging there. the film? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> He said, for director Ridley Scott, the greater challenge seemed to be creating that future world. Scott is a master of production design, of imagining other worlds of the future and the past. He seems more concerned with creating his film worlds than populating them with plausible characters, and that's the trouble this time. Blade Runner is a stunningly interesting visual achievement, but a failure as a story. And if that's not exactly how I feel about this movie, nothing is. Because it is stunning to watch. I, I really enjoyed all of the special effects. The, even the practical effects, all of the water in the, the big Bradbury building. And, and, you know, sending Roy's head through the stones just to kind of freak out Deckard. And, you know, the visual story that was told was pretty spectacular. Just narratively, it sucked. I'm not pulling punches anymore now. <laughs> I I think that description from Roger Ebert's stunning. <laughs> it really kind of is. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that I did like, just because I noticed it so much, I did kind of roll my eyes just a little bit. But when Roy got really poetic at the end, 
and he was talking about all of You are a heartless of- monster. A heartless <laughs> monster. <laughs> you know, he's talking about all of the things that he's seen and he says those memories are lost in time like tears in the rain. And it's a really good line. It just seemed super out of place and so it startled me a little bit. And so I really like it, but I also did kind of roll my eyes a little bit. It is a great line. It's a really good line. I mean, it's, it's fantastic especially a bit of imagery. Mm. And and um, from what I understand, that's the only line that Rutger Hauer was handed from the script. Like all the rest of it, the stuff he saw that Batty saw was ad libbed. Oh, I had no idea about that. I I mean, that may be an apocryphal story, but I've run into it enough that I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good about it. Also, because it doesn't entirely make any sense. I mean, it doesn't not make sense like much of the movie, but. Um, but they, since there had been so much eye imagery throughout the entire movie and so much rain and so much water that to, to sum up the movie in that line is that's well, again, I really hate the voiceover that Harrison Ford brings at the end because it steps over Roy's line, which sums up most of the visual imagery of the movie. All these things I saw, I, 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 eyes everywhere, you know, <laughs> Uh, Our loss like tears in the rain, rain everywhere, a baptism scene of a sort with Deckard. I mean, you know, all this water, all these eyes, and they bring it on home with Batty's last line. Man, that's strong. So, Joshua, I'm not going to let you pick everything from the film, but what are some (laughs) of your favorite things? Man. Um, That owl was really good. That's tough. The owl is really good, and I especially like, again, I mean, I I appreciate the totem animal aspect, and I really like what the owl says about Tyrell, that he incorporates some of that into his own look, that he's very often, uh, especially when we see him die, he's in these kind of like flowing white pajamas that could, if he stood still, could be, you know, like the stoic owl standing up, and he's got the big glasses. So I really like... Yeah, the owl is pretty good. The big wrap-up with Roy is pretty great. And let's be honest, I may be a little tired of seeing what 1984 thought the future would look like, but there is a reason that (laughs) every cover of every cyberpunk novel looks like Blade Runner. They Mm. nailed it. They nailed it. Mm. I I did read a thing that uh, William Gibson went to see this and walked out really upset because of how like Neuromancer that he was writing at the time it was. So he then Absolutely. Went, back, went back to the drawing board with what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how your Gibson coming out of that movie, even even if you're just in the sort of notes and early drafting stages of Neuromancer, I don't know how Blade Runner doesn't basically just lay itself over. It becomes the lens through which you see your own story. I don't know how mm. it would... I have a hard time imagining a cyberpunk story right now that doesn't look like Blade Runner to some extent in my head. So I can't, I feel bad for that guy now. (laughs) Um, Speaking of the owl and birds in this movie, I will say I did really, really like Sebastian's chess set. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a beautiful piece. I mean, in in a set of really weird and sometimes beautiful and sometimes just weird stuff, it stands out. One of the things, and it's almost, I think, what you've alluded to, Joshua, one of the things I love about this film is everything that's come from it. Mm-hmm. So allusions to it, people referencing it, people using it elsewhere. Um, the, watching it this time, 
when Leon goes, wake up, time to die, I was sat there scratching my head like I've heard that recently. Um, there's a game called Splosion Man and one of the bosses says that when he comes on screen. And when I finally got it, it had that, you know, Eureka hands in the, mo- hands in the air moment. Um, but there are two references to this film that I particularly love. One is Daryl Hannah as Pris is the archetype for Chiana from Farscape. The way she ends up looking, the way she moves, some of her characteristics. I, I'm sure Gigi actually watched this and committed it to memory when she was uh, uh, developing the character. I, I didn't notice it until you said that, but I absolutely. Mm. I can totally see it. I'm going to have to go look that up because due to a somewhat amusing anecdote, I am incapable of watching Farscape. <laughs> okay. Okay. It, it's panic attack inducing, but it's complicated. Goodness! Just look up, look up photographs of Chiana or Gigi Edgeley, mm. and she will look very familiar. Yeah. Although excellent, better because they did not do Daryl Hannah justice in this movie. No, yeah, and and on that, Sean Young looks amazing with the hair done in this very twenty style and, and so glamorous all the way through. A, a little bit like a robot in the in the way her face doesn't move. Um, Oh, yeah, I absolutely, the first thing I said when she started talking was, she's a replicant. Mm. She's so deadpan. And and if you compare it to the only other Voight-Kampf that we see is Leon, who is freaking out from minute one and trying to keep a lid on it. You compare these two things and you're like, I would have pegged her as a replicant and him as mm-hmm. not. And I don't know mm-hmm. what they're trying to tell me with this. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, I was convinced Leon was not a replicant in that first scene until he started shooting. It's like, oh, he's way too emotional. This is not, you know, a replicant's not going to be this stupid for starters, was was my thought. Because I come into this thinking robots are smart because they're built. And you're not going to build somebody to be stupid. Like, what's a tortoise? I've never seen one. You know? <laughs> I was well, that, convinced. The, the opening card says replicants are at least equal in, in intelligence. So straight from the beginning, it's giving you a bit of that dissonance about them. Right. Um, the other reference is uh, an episode of Red Dwarf, which it, it, the the whole episode is mostly Blade Runner, um, Blade Runner puns and spoofs and things. <laughs> but there is a bit where they have a photograph of someone, and the person is holding a card with an address on it, and they want to get that address, but obviously you can't see it because the card's being held away from the camera, and it's just this whole sequence where. They pan into a reflective surface on the other side of the street, and then they pan into a water drop on a lamppost, and then they enhance a reflection in a mirror, and then they can see the card and then rotate it upside down, and finally they can get the address off it. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is that's fantastic. Just because his in- whole enhanced sequence is so like, wait, what is he doing? What is he doing? I think right. it's meant to be like a 3D photo, but we can only see it in 2D or something. But it's a bit random. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I want that gadget. I do. This mm. was the first time watching Blade Runner that I wondered if we had it to blame for all of the enhanced scenes in CSI and its various attendant oh, yeah. spinoffs. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it just, it's, again, this thing has lived with me almost my whole life. So it didn't occur to me until this time that I was like, oh my God, we have Ridley Scott to blame for that too. <laughs> <laughs> you and, have many and sins, Ridley Scott. Many sins. It, it's more evidence that um, Harrison Ford is actually an older character because any young person who gets that machine turns the beeps off straight away. Surely. <laughs> <laughs> Although this is this is what 1982 thought the future would look like, so maybe it didn't occur to anybody that turning beeps off was a thing that could happen. <laughs> yeah. 
we're all still just living with 12s blinking on our VCRs. <laughs> Maybe beeps are just part of the deal. I just dated the hell out of myself. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> so, is there anything else that we wanted to discuss about Blade Runner? I just want to bring up that even though I missed one of the Buffy references, there was a second one in this movie from 1982, which is amazing. So the Innes house is a really popular house for shooting movies and stuff. And that was the house that Harrison Ford's apartment was in in this movie. And the exterior of this house was the mansion that Spike drew and Angelus lived in in season two of Buffy. And I just need everybody to know that. Bring it I know home. it's not interesting to anybody else, but I needed everybody to know that. Because... Okay, that's not true. I really like these things that are in Los Angeles that are just there that wind up in all these different, <laughs> bi- like the high schools, you know, that just wind up in all these different areas and spaces. I'm into that thing. So yeah, um, most of the buildings in this were like that. The the Bradbury Building, uh, which is the building where Sebastian's apartment was. That has been in so many things. I was mm-hmm. looking at the list, and I was just like, this is ridiculous how often this building is used in movies and TV shows. And it's beautiful, if not creepy. Yeah, the one that always comes to mind when I think about LA locations is the Griffith Observatory, which is in, like, every film <laughs> and TV show. And it's show. also an angel. <laughs> yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least that's set in LA. Like, that's allowed. <laughs> right. True. Okay, so... The sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, actually comes out next week. Do you think it's worth seeing? Do you think we should go see it? Wow, that's a tough call. There was actually a Blade Runner sequel novel not written by... It was not a... It was a Blade Runner sequel, not a Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep sequel. And it was not good. And that may not have anything to do with this movie, but I feel like this movie is going to answer questions that Blade Runner was just supposed to raise and never put back to bed. And clearly, I love the ambiguity of Blade Runner, and so I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm also not sure how the visuals are going to work now that it's been all this time that this is what cyberpunk looks like. I just I just don't... I don't know what to... I don't know... I don't know what to want from a Blade Runner sequel. <laughs> so I think that means the answer is yes, you need to go see it just to see what they do. Uh, probably I need to get it into my home somehow. I doubt, <laughs> I doubt that I need to go sit with a bunch of other nerds to find out. Because nerds ruin everything, and I know that because I smell my own. So <laughs> They uh, overanalyze and discuss in too much detail. Ugh. And then they <laughs> podcast about it. Oh my gosh. I regret nothing. Let's stick them in a locker and run away. No, that's what I'm saying. I need to do that with very specific nerds, not just whatever rabble of nerds showed up for a Blade Runner sequel who sequel who may or may not care, you know. But yeah, I, I think I am probably going to wind up seeing it. But it's a real. It, it just exists in a really weird space for me. That's fair. I want to see it specifically because it's Harrison Ford and Edward James Olmos and Ryan Reynolds, and I have no shame in saying that. Oh, was almost in it. Yes, he's coming back as Gaff. Oh, cool. Okay. Okay, if 75% of the movie is about Gaff, then I'm in. <laughs> I, I have a feeling you're being taken to it anyway, Mandy. There's no way out of this for you, is there? <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Matthew, what do you think? I am not going to go and see it. 
Um, I it, and in fact, it's funny. Had we not recorded this podcast, I might have done. But having watched this and gone, no, over and above everything else, I don't enjoy this. I'm, I'm not going to go and pay oh. to go to the cinema to see something that is a follow up to something I don't enjoy. When I suspect it's going to be, like you say, answer some of the questions, but it's going to be a, 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 almost a modern take on this. I think so. I yeah. will wait for it to come onto Sky or some sort of screening thing over here. I am expecting it to be more visually like Battlestar Galactica, and mm. I, I think that's increasing my desire to want to see it. Did you see Arrival? I did. Because it's the same director, and and that's one of the things that makes me want to see it because he is clearly mm. very good at what he does. Okay. Yeah, okay. I am likely probably like ninety five percent gonna go see this movie. So. <laughs> Even though I didn't particularly enjoy this one, I'm yeah, so going to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm. I, there's no way I make it to the movie theater to see this unless someone takes me. I'm. We're just so. I'm so movie theater choosy. I got a good setup at my house. I don't need people to bring their two year old to the Blade Runner sequel and ruin it for me. You know that kind of stuff. So, I'm real snooty about what I go to the theater for. So I'll see it, and we'll talk about it then. But okay. I just One day. can't imagine buying a ticket. Okay. Uh, so, Joshua, the big list of things for Mandy to see. Do you have anything else you think she should add to it? Oh, I can't do it because I already, I think we hit two of them earlier in the conversation that I mentioned uh, Splash. And then we, we kind of came sideways towards um, Working Girl. So I think, okay. I think I should step away now while I've only <laughs> added two things okay. to the list. <laughs> all right. All it right. only seems fair to others. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've had some feedback from folks on some of our previous episodes, and so we want to give a shout out to those guys. Sarah at Not Sailing Alone uh, recently listened to our Thelma and Louise episode, and she said, this movie changed my life when I saw it after graduating high school. Thank you for treating it with such respect. Uh, Jazzy at Jawsbot7 uh, said that she hasn't seen Little Shop of Horrors for 30 years and has no recollection. But we did inspire her to download and memorize the soundtrack. Um, I think I think she was one of several people who did this exact thing. Yes, well done. <laughs> it is worth it. And we've actually started um, a Spotify account, and we have a Spotify playlist of uh, music from different films that we've covered. So I will make sure to share that out on social media. Uh, if you want to listen to a whole varying things, songs from... Blade Runner, American Beauty, through to Rocky Horror Show and Little Shop of Horrors. There is something there for everyone. And we also had Lauren at Six Legged Knits on Twitter. She is also responding to Little Shop of the Horrors. She said, having been in the stage play, the movie ending is lame, though I'd probably prefer it without that. I think that's fair. Um, you know, if, if that's if you came to the stage play first, absolutely, that's the ending you're going to like. Did, did we ask Lauren what she was in? The stage play has. I don't think we did. I didn't. Lauren, come back and tell us what what did you play? Were you Audrey? Please tell me you were Audrey. Was she in the or Flawless? Audrey too? <laughs> Maybe you were Audrey too, and that would be awesome. I mean, it's awesome no matter what. But yeah, pictures would be nice. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, if you'd like to have your thoughts featured in this segment, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at EloquentGushing. And you can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was a really good conversation again. So thank you. It's been really fascinating. Uh, where can people find you in the world? 
It was my pleasure, and I hope it didn't wind up being too contentious. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joshua Unruh, J-O-S-H-U-A-U-N-R-U-H. And if I sound like somebody who knows anything about how stories work, you can find uh, all the books and various uh, short stories and novellas and stuff I've written at JoshuaUnruh.com. And if you remember me from the Batman episode and think I might know something about superheroes, you should go listen to Superhero University. We have done uh, Wonder Woman's latest in comic book origin, and we are in the middle of Batgirl's uh, soft reboot sort of new origin. Um, voted on by the patrons, very unexpectedly. Um, I will say I listened to the Wonder Woman uh, episodes because you did those first and those were fantastic. I haven't gone any further because I'm still very much deprived when it comes to comic books and I want to read the comic books you're talking about before I listen. Uh, but what she did with Wonder Woman was great. And so if you guys are interested at all in learning about superheroes and superhero comics, definitely, definitely check out Joshua and his work. Absolutely. Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Uh, you can get access to exclusive content and to help support the network and help us develop new shows. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to subscribe to the weekly newsletter, which gives you updates on all the upcoming episodes and goings on. The link for that is at eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about 2016's Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And you're in a desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.